Being trained in an effective crisis management system is imperative for minimizing behavioral issues and the need for restraint in schools and treatment facilities. But not all crisis management systems were created equal. If we are going to meet the growing intense behavioral needs of individuals while simultaneously reducing the need for restraints, every leader and policymaker who is involved in areas related to behavioral challenges should understand what a complete crisis management system is comprised of and how to embed one into any setting. For more information, check out crisisintervention.com. Welcome to the Crisis in Education podcast, where educational leaders and experts across the world dissect the root causes of issues and explore potential opportunities for sustainable improvement across schools and districts. And now your co-hosts, Dr. Polly and Drew. All right. Thanks for coming back to the Crisis in Education podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Polly, and I'm I'm here with a couple of very cool people. I'm going to be very honest. I am here as a learner today because they're going to be talking about some stuff that just isn't in my wheelhouse, but I think it's really important because it's about the science of human behavior for helping individuals who are in need, helping them learn, helping them communicate, just lots of great things. So we have joining us a, a wife and a husband team. Uh, let me see. We have Liz Mayer, uh, who is the lead clinician of Data Makes a Difference. And uh, Steve Mayer, who is, am I saying it right, Mayer? We, Mayer. we respond. We respond to both, and I, I have actually <laughs> spent years just just going along with Mayer. So is no Mayer. Worries. The the official uh, pronunciation is Mar. Oh man, I blew that. All right, well, Mar. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, is our daughter is twenty seven. She has autism. When she was in school, you would ask her her name, and for she would always say Sarah Mayer. Because that's, you know, even though we told her she was Ma, she, you know. She's going with the flow. She's always Mayha. Yeah. yeah, it looks like. All right. So, so Steve Ma, all right. So, and he's the president of Data Makes the Difference. Man, Steve, why, why is she, why is Liz the lead clinician, not like the vice president or something, brother, or the CEO? I don't. <laughs> good question i'm just saying man i don't mean to, i hope i don't steer anything up right there brother i'm just like wait a second <laughs> i'm just teasing guys names don't mean anything to me i can throw them out whatever it's about what happens in there All right so so uh you know steve i think is uh is a, as a parent he's not a behavior analyst he's a parent he's also uh looks like he does all the software end of this stuff um uh, it looks like you've consulted with a whole bunch of places the navy bell atlantic new york times united nations populations fund very cool man um and uh you also now manage uh this vb uh verb behavior map app on behalf of dr uh what's what's his first carl sunberg is it carl no mark. that is a mark. carl but okay this, this is mark sunberg <laughs> apologies dr brilliant. sunberg I, I can't remember people's names. Honestly, God, I mean, I got I think I've been hitting the head too much. I don't know what it is. And, uh, Dr. Pat McGreevy and Troy Fry. So if you're, if you're in the field of behavior analysis, these are, should be all familiar names to you. If you're not, well, they're not. They're, they're folks who have a lot of great knowledge, who have done a lot of positive things in the world to help people with disabilities and other people as well. And, um, uh, Liz, it looks like you've been a behavior analyst, certified behavior analyst since 2008. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course you both together have a child, as you mentioned, uh, Sarah, that's been diagnosed with autism. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm guessing that's 
you know, really made, you know, the science of human behavior important to you and made your work very important to you because you've lived it and you've you've experienced it in ways that other people can't. And so I would imagine that if you were behind this, it's something that can help a lot of people because I'm sure you must be helped, have used it to help your daughter and, you know, people within your circle. So I'm really interested to hear about that stuff. But um, before we do, I'd love to hear how you guys met. And uh, I would love to ha- hear how you got into the field, um, and maybe because of Sarah, I don't know. But uh, you know, but we'll start with how you guys met. You want to start? Um, I, I was in, in college, a college called Mary Washington College at the time. It's now called Mary Washington University. Uh, back in eighty uh, nine through ninety three, and Liz was a foreign exchange student who came over uh, in nineteen ninety three, and I fell in love. And Liz said she does too, and I, I think she did. Um, and Liz, was he chasing you? Don't lie. Who was chasing who? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, <laughs> a little but, bit. Did, he apparently I, had some I, I, game, I, I, or he might have the game of no game. <laughs> he, was, he was awesome. He was awesome. <laughs> I came to the states, not even you know, I was just out for a semester, not even expecting to meet anybody. It was. Uh, Six girls came over and six of the Mary Washington crew went over to my university. And uh, I was in education and so was Steve. And we would, uh, we met that semester, fell in love. Um, Steve, ironically, would actually run a program called Daybreak. And it was what, once a month? Once a week. Oh, once a so, week. Saturday mornings. Um, it would be respite for parents of kids with special needs. So um, once I got to know him, I would go, we would, you know, get the snacks for the kids, hang out. And it's it's just really funny looking back that here we are now. Uh, we had a daughter with autism. She's now 27. Um, and the field of behavior and uh Applied behavior analysis just opened up to us because of Sarah and because mm-hmm. of the benefits that we saw the science provided mm-hmm. for her. Well, Steve, you so that's well, first of all, that says a lot about both your guys' characters. I mean, you're running a respite for for parents who desperately need, you know, they, they need a break, man. I, I can't God bless you guys, man. God bless a lot of the the, the, the parents who are just it can be so tough, really, depending on, I think, you know, the, the needs of uh, you know, the children. Um, but what got you into running the respite, Steve? Like, how did you go down that path? I was a psychology major, and there was a flyer up in the hallway, and I was interested in it. And I spoke to who was in charge previously. Uh, pri- it was um, all staffed by, by college students, and uh, something that interested me. I went and I was really blown away by a lot of things that I experienced there, the way the children would self-adapt games to accommodate the abilities of other learners there. That kind of thing just amazed me. So if one learner was not really mobile and, and perhaps would move around on hands and knees or perhaps with just arm power, um, a child playing duck, duck, goose just would instinctively hop down and do the chase in, in a way that was more fair. Things like that and, and just being amazed and inspired by these children uh, made me just feel wonderful. And that inspired me to, to go there and do that every Saturday. And then the next semester, 
there was nobody to do it and they were at risk of maybe having to shut it down. So I volunteered and I did it. And that was the semester where Liz and I would often go. That is, that is very, very cool. Um, Liz, I, I've, I spent a little time in uh, the UK, London in a little, little town outside of London. My fighter, uh, Brad Pickett, he's a, a UFC who's ranked number two in the UFC at one point. I'm not sure if you know what the UFC is, makes martial arts. Um, yeah. So do you know one punch, Brad, one punch Pickett? Um, he's, he's a, he's a legend in the UK. He's one of the, the OGs, the originals. And, mm-hmm. uh, I just, man, I love him to death. He's one of my favorite people. His wife is wonderful. He's such a great dad. Like he's one of like just the greatest, you know, persons that I've, I've ever met. So, uh, Steve, you got lucky, brother. <laughs> where, where in England did you? I can't. Really uh, it starts with an M E R. I can't remember. I mean, I went to I went to London because that's where the fights are. Um, and I've been to a couple other places that again I can't I can't remember the names of the places. I could go back and look it up, but I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I the other towns were a little bit smaller that I went to, um, but they were it was fabulous that people treated this well. But of course, they're like. You know, we're we're being chauffeured everywhere, and it's the UFC. You know, so we're getting a lot of fun attention. You know, a lot of positive reinforcement. You know, but but it was it's, it's always been a great experience. So uh, Brad One Punch Pickett, just one of the greatest guys I know. Um, anyway, so let's go ahead and make the shift. I, I know we're going to talk about the the VB map. Um, and uh, so if you can just just leave me a little bit. I, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, well, not that could be wrong about this. But how did you get into the science? And then I, what I would like to do is after we talk about that. Explain to our listeners what verbal behavior is, right? And then we can go into, uh, you know, why there's a need need for it, um, like what people were doing before, yeah. right? And then what they we found that with the science, how verbal behavior can help, and then where the the, the VB map comes in, and then maybe what you guys did uh, to make it even better, because I guess you know there must there have been some holes in there that, that that need to be filled to to make it easier for people to use. So we'll start with just you know your your, your how you got in the science. Yeah, well, I can do that. And then Steve can uh, let you know how we took the BB map and made it electronic. And actually, the best way to talk about it is to talk about it personally, because when Sarah was first diagnosed, we did the the traditional um, speech and OT, and she started making progress. But the speech, they just couldn't, they didn't use motivation at the time and they couldn't um, break it down into manageable pieces. And so she would have a lot of temper tantrums and we realized that the science of applied behavior analysis would help. So we started off, we ran her program um, with the help of a consultant and we started off using the the Lovas book, the me book, and uh, which was fabulous. And she made great progress. Can you explain what the Lovas is book for any of our folks that don't might not know what it is? Yeah, so Lovas um, did a study of kids with autism and found that using the science of applied behavior analysis, they made great progress. Um, And his book um, was would look at language in terms of um, expressive and receptive. I hope I'm 
breaking this down enough. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm sure your listeners might come back and go, no, Liz. How they communicate to people and how they receive communication. That'd be easier. Correct. Right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, so that's how we started with Sarah. And, and then I, I found that she was making great progress. So I wanted to learn more about the science. I went back to school um, to study to be a BCBA. But the difference between using um, verbal behavior and the approach that we, we used with Sarah at the time is to look at Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior. It allows you to... Um, analyze how the child is using their language. So not just, so people would say to me, how many words does Sarah have? And I would say 10, but never would people say, well, how's she using those words? And if I look back at how she was using her words, they were all tacts, which is verbal behavior. Layman's term is a label. So she could label things in her environment. But when it came to asking for those things, eat under levels of motivation. So she now was wanting to mand or request for those items. She couldn't do it. She would have problem behavior. So even though she could use those words under one condition, she couldn't use them under another. And I just think using um, Skinner's analysis of verbal behavior really revolutionized how we look at our learners using um, language. Because what we find, especially with early learners, is just because they can use it under one condition doesn't mean they can use it under another condition. And we want to make sure we, we assess our learner to figure out what skills they have, what deficits, and then we want to program for those skills and deficits. So, you know, you you might have a learner who has a great uh, tact repertoire, they're able to label, but they can't ask for those things. So maybe we're going to use that tact repertoire to then the labeling to then teach them to request. Um, and the, the BB map uh, VB stands for Verbal Behavior Milestone Assessment and Placement Program that Dr. Sumberg came up with. He looked at hundreds and hundreds of developmental charts and he figured out what um, operants, what um, domains, domains um, the, the learners, these developmental charts we're talking about are they talking about the child's ability to request or label or answer questions and he he used that and created this amazing assessment that is sequenced across typical child development so we're looking at this developmental tool we're comparing our learners to typical development and the, the hope is um, we get them on this developmental assessment, we teach them correctly, we transfer across the operands. So we teach them to use their language under different conditions. And then over time, with lots of examples, we don't have to teach them everything. So that's, that's how and it's so powerful. And we, we didn't use that with Sarah. Um, she kind of, I mean, verbal behavior was out there, but I didn't know about it. Um, and I'm just very passionate about it because I think it would have made a huge difference early on in Sarah's programming. So a, a couple of things. Um, all right. 
just for folks that might be listening to us who are not behavioralists, I mean, communication is everything. You yeah. know, if somebody, can you imagine somebody covering your mouth and making it so you can even use your eyes or like nod your head, right? Imagine how frustrating that would be. And, you know, and if people aren't understanding you, you would just go bonkers. You know what I mean? This is where people start doing other things. And if somebody responds to what you're doing, right, you're going to keep doing that more because you got a response for that. So um, what, what, what I guess the verbal behavior is doing is teaching people to, to break down complex communication to smaller step uh, chunks. And then uh, when we talk about tacting and labeling, like, you know, you, you say that's red and that's green, that's yellow or, or functional. That's, that's my toy. You know, you have to be able to, to be able to label things first before you can request it. And this is what she talks about. Tact demand. Demand is like a demand. And so this is all very important because we want to teach people to get their needs met. And, um, and, and, and having this stuff generalized, it may sound, it's hard for people to understand this, but here's, I'll give you a, a, a simple example of, um, where under a different condition, um, I was really struggling and the condition was very small, uh, very small. And so, um, when you, so usually when, uh, I do like a, a PowerPoint, um, you normally read like I, I printed out the PowerPoint slides. You know how you can print out the PowerPoint slides, the deck, you know, and and uh, you you know you have you can have one sheet with like nine of them on it, right? And it usually goes left to right, right? So you can read it: slide one, slide two, slide three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, right? Well, for some reason, I made a mistake and I printed it out vertically instead of horizontally. Can I tell you that threw me off so much? Because even though those are the slides, why can't I just read down? It was, there were new conditions there for me, you know, and I was just so used to doing it that way that I have not, did not generalize and I, I literally couldn't do it. And well-functioning grown man, you know, and that simple thing was hard. So imagine these learners who have very little repertoires, uh, you know, having to generalize from literally one part in a classroom to another part in a classroom, that simple change, looking at different direction. It can be, it can be dizzying for us, way more dizzying for them. And I think typically, typical developing kiddos make it look easy. We don't realize um, what they're learning and what they're picking up on. And uh, yeah, and just to clarify, for Sarah, she she had strengths with tacting, labeling, but it may be something different. You might, especially with an early learner on the VB map, there's a tendency to not have any... Um, communication you know you you might be you might have learners who have strengths in matching and imitation and uh, maybe some vocal and echoic um, and so then from that you can kind of figure out um, based on their strengths what type of communication uh, you might give them as as an alternative method while we're while we're working on speech. Um, Can you give an example of that for the folks listening? Like they're trying this way and what an echoic is, you know, and how you like will teach them using verbal behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if they have strengths in echoics, meaning they can echo. So if you say, say cookie, they can repeat cookie and they can't request, then we could use that echoic prompt 
to help them learn to request. So we could hold up a cookie, they're motivated for cookie. We say cookie, we know they're going to repeat it because they have that echoic skill, and then we can deliver the cookie. We can fade out our prompt. Um, and we can do that if they have strengths in imitation and they're not um, vocal verbal, they can't echo. Maybe we look at signing. And, and use sign the same way. If they're good with matching, maybe we're going to look at, at pictures. So the VB map can guide you with that. Um, we actually have a really awesome thing coming out, um, and it actually comes from uh, Dr. McGreevy and Troy Fry's work, Essential for Living. It um, is an alternative method of communication. Um, what's the word? kind of checklist trying to figure out what would be a good way if your learner isn't speaking what might be a good way to explore so instead of making that um, decision like oh this this child has autism with kids with autism we always do pecs or um, I'm trained in blank so I'm going to do blank to teach my the learners to communicate. It actually kind of takes that subjective feeling out of it. So right. yeah, the, the utility is called AMS Compare, Alternative Method of Speaking Comparison. Um, Dr. McGreevy uh, came up with, believe it or not, 46 different methods of communicating. And this utility asks questions, is there severe problem behavior? Are they sighted? Do they have a hearing impairment? Uh, all kinds of uh, of questions that are needed to make a decision about what's a what's a best way for this learner to be able to communicate. Uh, it's a, a free utility. It'll be on our website uh, in the in the very near future, like a couple of days from now. But what what I found so um, concerning uh, in the world is something that you touched on earlier. Um, and that if one cannot communicate effectively, it causes extreme frustration, but also things like isolation, uh, difficulties with learning, difficulties with getting needs met and not just um, getting, you know, a preferred item or food, but also uh, to, to be able to, uh, you know, get help if they need to use the restroom. It can be a very isolating, frustrating, and, and anger-inducing situation if one cannot uh, communicate and get their needs met. And we saw this with Sarah as well. When Sarah couldn't get what she wanted, uh, she would lash out and, and she would slap. Um, and this initiative to help find a good way for learners to communicate really is a, a movement of liberation. It's to get folks out there so that they can communicate in, in a method that is good for them. And it allows for them to have a greater degree of, of, of dignity, of enjoyment of life, and a larger audience with which they can interact. Well said, man. Uh, I mean, that is just, I think that brings it to life for anybody who um, is, even if you're not in the field, to understand how, stuff, how important this is. So, um, all right. So let's now like shift, like, I know, all right, we, we kind of understand a little bit of what, about what verbal behavior is and why it's important. Um, why isn't it like, is it, is it being used everywhere? How, how prevalent is it being used? Is it, is it being used prevalently in, in, in our field? Is it something that could be used across 
fields, right? You know, are there different ways that people are teaching others to communicate that, you know, hey, this might not be grounded in science? Like, what are you guys seeing out there? Let's take a quick break. If you work across schools or treatment facilities and you want an environment characterized by students or clients behaving well and meeting their goals, you need Everyday Behavior Tools. These tools are so powerful and generalizable that you can train anybody anywhere in them. And here is the best part. The entire instructor training is online. If you are interested in becoming an Everyday Behavior Tools trainer to improve behavior in your organization while also generating more income for yourself, go to crisisintervention.com. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of surprising sometimes that we'll have, we'll go to a training and we'll say to people, well, what are you using to assess your learners? And it's, you know, maybe the Vineland or something like that. And, and I understand that um, there are certain um, assessments that have to be done that are part of the IEP, but I'm always so um, surprised that people aren't always assessing, looking at language because i mean if we especially autism we look at autism that's that's your huge deficit right there um so makes a lot of sense to have an assessment um the focusing on language and uh i think both steve and i with the vb map and then efl also looks at skinner's analysis of verbal behavior too it uses the science too i think we both super passionate that wouldn't it be amazing if when a learner left school so whatever age that was every learner that left school had the ability to communicate in some way mm-hmm. get their yeah. needs even yeah. if it was just to ask for their five most favorite things two most favorite things and and we know that is very possible uh you know i would think i mean with with I don't even know who wouldn't be possible with, I mean, with 99.999999%. I mean, gosh, I don't, I, I, it's uh, most of the problems in our world are caused by communication. So this is like generalizable to us. I think we all need some sort of, you know, assessment for our own behavior and communication to get our needs met. Cause we say all sorts of stupid shit, don't we? <laughs> 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 we need to be better, but uh, there's so many, so many kids who are going through, school and they're coming out and they're not able to do that. And that is very sad for them. Uh, sad for the, the caregivers, the families, because gosh, what, what happens after age 21 and they age out and you know, if they can't communicate, that means, and by that time, that means they're getting their needs met in other ways they are communicating. All right. But not the ways that we, we really want them to, as you mentioned, they're, they're hitting, slapping, punching and, and man, what a terrible quality of life. Who knows what this is exacerbating, you know, I'm sure they ended up being restraints and being medically restrained and, and who knows and worse, you know, it gets, it goes on up. So bad things where if we were using some evidence, well, some, some science in, in, in the beginning and, and through every year to, to teach communication um, in the Vineland, is that just because, you know, if you're a psychologist, when the, the, the world, you know, looks, you have a hammer, the world looks like a nail. Is that something psychologists should normally use? I, th- I think so. Um, I don't know 
too much about it. You would think as a parent, I would know a lot about IEPs, but truthfully, when IEP season came around for Sarah, I was just, you know, shriveled up in a fetal position, you know, teachers would ask, where do you see Sarah? And I'm like, I don't know. And, you know, you always felt very guilty about not knowing the oh, answer gosh. To the question. Yeah. Um, some teachers. Um, and I think the other issue is if we're really thinking about what's going on, I feel terrible for educators because their hands are tied. They have to adhere to the state standards. Um, so you get all kind of wrapped up in teaching, reading and math. And, and it's like, oh, boy, these kids don't need that. They need communication. And then the other huge thing, which I think gets forgotten, and this is kind of my passion of the moment is teaching leisure 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 skills to um kiddos because like you said when they leave school at 21 what where are they going what's going to happen if they're at home and they have no way to occupy themselves in a socially appropriate way you know that's exhausting for parents mm -hmm. we've we've been very lucky in the sense that sarah is actually pretty good she enjoys quite a few things and uh you know so but there are kids out there that i know friends kids who you know if they're if they're not occupied if they're not with an adult they're you know throwing stuff down the toilet they're they're ripping wires they're of you course know? yeah they're not engaged i mean <laughs> you know if they're not i mean the learning has to be meaningful to them and of course like getting your needs met is the most meaningful thing to anybody. You know, you can find out what's important to them and give them a way to get that thing right. or get away from that thing appropriately. It becomes so important. It just drives me, but I man, when you, when you just talked about education, I'm very passionate about education. That kind of stuff drives me freaking nuts uh, that we're being driven by scope and sequence um, that, you know, doesn't necessarily meet. It's, it's like they teach to the mean and uh, instead of giving, focusing on what's important to learners and doing like real world functional skills for people, you know, we get, even in general ed, we get so much theory that, you know, how is that generalizing? I'm not saying we don't need to know facts, but facts are at our fingertips. We need people that can come out and they can, they can critically think about things, right? They can read very well. They have, you know, good, fluent with math. And, and, you know, again, most importantly, they can communicate and get their needs met at all levels. And, and I just, I just don't get it, man. I it just, it, it drives me friggin' nuts. But anyways, um, let me get off that, that, that soapbox. So now how was before you guys came, got involved with the, with the software, right? How, how was the, what, what did the assessment look like and what were the, some of the struggles with that? Because obviously, you know, we adapt and we make things easier and uh, for people to use. So what did that look like and why was it maybe that not the best way, uh, which, you know, caused you to want to focus on, you know, building the software? Well, Liz used to come home with stacks of paper, behavior data um, when she was a consultant. And the, the teachers would say, we don't really know what's working or what, if we're, you know, improving or not, it's really hard to tell. And they would hand over the paper and Liz would go through and it would take several hours. Um, and Liz's statement to me was, it's got to be a better way. So we came up with an application. It was called Behavior Tracker Pro. It's 
was, you know, we, it's not even in the market anymore. But what it did was allowed people to record these behaviors, not on, on paper, but with an iPhone or an iPad. Uh, and then it would graph the behaviors and you can get a good idea. It was all about automation and avoiding that situation where you take all this data for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then you hand over a stack of papers. It's just not, not effective at all. No. So we yeah, attack easy, easy visual, problem. easy visual analysis is what we need. Low yep. response effort for collecting and for reviewing it. Yep. Yep. So that, that, you know, that was uh, helpful. That was a problem that we saw and, um, something that basically we attacked. The VB map is a, is a brilliant publication um, written solely by Dr. Mark Sunberg. Um, in the in the print version, it, it is wonderful. It is wonderful. And, and hundreds of thousands of students around the world have benefited immensely from, from Dr. Sunberg's work. But a print medium has limitations. Uh, it's not dynamic. It is what it is. So one would open up what is called this, the protocol, which is where you would score things, and you would give a score of zero, half, or one. Occasionally, the only options were zero or one. There were specific techniques to probe those skills, and information about how to do that was over in the handbook. So people would have to go back and forth. It, it, it could make the assessment process a little bit slower, and then the learner might stop paying attention, stop cooperating. Um, there were just a lot of difficulties around that. So we created an application where you could collect the data. You would have just the information that you needed for that particular milestone or barrier item. These are components of that assessment. So our job was not to try and change the VB map but simply make it so that you could do it electronically. It could color in the scoring grids and reports automatically. It could add up all those zeros, 0.5s and ones and do that for you. And, and although the math is not difficult, we found that a lot of practitioners were making a lot of errors when they were counting things up, but the computer doesn't make that error. And it then colors in the grids for you, saving a lot of time. So that was another problem that we attacked through what we do. The VB map is wonderful, far beyond anything that either Liz or I could ever come up with. But with technology, we can automate a lot of it, um, make it a lot more accurate, uh, easier to use, and most importantly, allow the teachers and, and practitioners to work with the students and not have to work with pe uh, pencil and paper. I would think that, that sounds wonderful. I, you know, I love technology. Anything that, you know, especially when it's about helping people, if we can make it easier to help people and more accurate, I'm, I'm all for that. Um, and so I'm wondering, is, has there been any research on the efficacy of it, like compared to like previous? Because as you mentioned, like there were errors made, right? That's that's an important data point. Be like, you know, hey, we were getting 15% errors on average or 10, whatever it is, even the smaller, that's it can be very important. And now, you know, we have zero errors because of this or whatever it is. Has there been any research conducted uh, that looked at that or the time that it saves people to uh, actually do it, which I got to think that's great or how people respond to it because it's all graphed and easy to look at anything like that. Yeah. In terms of in terms of a study, I'm not aware of a study. What I have seen is a lot of anecdotal evidence thousands and thousands of people when speaking to them at conferences and elsewhere, we love it. It makes my life so much better. 
But as far as a formal study, no, that, not that I'm aware of. It'd be interesting. I mean, just that is good data, like social validity data. Like we love it. It's so mm-hmm. much better. It's doing that. But I, I imagine like a, a time study would be great. Um, and also just again, the, 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 the social validity for the consumers, like for the caregivers to see and the, and the, the teachers be like, Oh, I can see. I mean, that, that metric as feedback to people is such a powerful reinforcer. Uh, you know, for and also of course helps people make decisions. That that's like a really wonderful thing. So I mean, I don't know. I, I you don't have to research everything. It just makes sense that it's going to be yeah, great. But, but it would be still kind of cool, you know. That's mm-hmm. a good idea. The other thing that the electronic version allows you to do is share the the data, the assessment with a parent, with the speech teacher, with OT, with your admin. So every you're not passing a book around. It's right there. Gosh, I, think, I think for me, the biggest thing when I have done a BB map on a learner is we have this report that gets generated. It's actually a report that Mark Sundberg would write and it pulls in information from the guidebook and oh my goodness, does that save time? Hours per learner. So Hours. it is it is a good study. I it would be really interesting. I look see. at it like I start to zoom out right away. I think about it from an OBM perspective, right? And that is if you know that graph, uh, and of course, if you know that graph is going to be coming out, right? And you're say a teacher, and you know, we want we 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 want teachers to value helping the learners, right? And we're gonna make an assumption that most do. Teach some teachers coming in, they don't especially those who have been trained uh, to work in ASD units, which a lot of times are being dropped in there, right? Without the knowledge and skills to be successful. And it's very difficult in those classrooms without, because they need to be engineered like every second of the day. But when they're well-engineered and you have somebody that's very passionate about doing it, they can move in the right direction. But sometimes um, there's not that level of motivation there. But I was thinking that um, if, if there was a, a visual representation of progress being shared regularly, right? If I'm, if I'm the teacher and I know that, you know, we're looking at this VV map and there's data going to come out, it's automatic, it's being scored. And uh, my, my supervisor is going to see it and the administrator, you know, and, and looking at it across kids, that's going to increase the likelihood that I want to engage in the instructional behaviors that are going to impact that data point, which then puts everybody else in a position to positively reinforce, which is really what we want. Right. Um, and then of course, um, looking at it across, but generalize that across more than one student, right? Multiple students in there like, well, you know, Hey, you're, you're doing well. It's not just one student that's doing well. You have 80% of your students that are doing well, accelerating, uh, because they should be. And if they're not, then that's a data point to look at from a performance management standpoint. Does this teacher not have the skill to do it or they do they not have ample motivation, which would just come in the form. We got to observe more. We got to make sure they can see the impact of the behavior. You know, we got to give more feedback. We got to reinforce more. You know, so that comes back out to those in the settings. But I can, I can see this just zooming out and generalizing this. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And then one thing that we speaking of that and uh, teachers and newly qualified teachers. The other thing we're trying to do with both um, Essential for Living and VB Map is get it out there to colleges so um i I think you're with endicott and actually endicott their their bachelor's level i think masters and master's level uh educators we we give them access to a vb map or efl and the training because you know i remember when i did my special ed degree i'm sure it's much better now 
but I think about when Don't I be graduated, sure. <laughs> I wasn't ready to go out in a classroom. I didn't have any tools. And uh, so we're really trying to um, kind of focus on um, students as well and giving them what they need. Yeah. So for, for your audience, I hope that if there are professors out there at, at any level, please reach out to us. Um, we do provide uh, free web-based training and free application licenses because we know that undergrads, master's students, and PhD candidates, money is often a limiting factor. And, um, you know, we work with numerous uh, universities and we feel that um, it's important to get this knowledge out there so that when they, when they do graduate and they get their first job, it doesn't take them a couple of years before they can start effectively using things like VPAP and Essential for Living. There is another component to it, and that is to get, uh, you know, this is strictly a business thing, penetration of, into the market. Okay, so we, we, we do want to provide these things to solve a problem, but, you know, to be perfectly honest and ethical about it, we want them to understand what our products do and then hopefully use them out in the field and that would benefit us financially. Yeah, I don't have any problem with that, man. Like it's a win when you're helping what there's nothing wrong with, you know, making a living doing something that you love, especially when it's helping people, you know. That's a wonderful thing. And you have a tool on the market that's doing it that, that makes good sense. So, so many people, when I get past my certification, it's great. I understand theory. I need some freaking tools to be effective. And this seems like a shortcut to be effective right away because it's a path. It's like a task analyzed path for being successful in an area where a lot of behavior analysts are working in. So that makes good sense. I work at Endicott. My um my partner, Anika Costa, is actually uh working at Endicott. She's gonna start teaching the OBM for clinical and schools, I think. I forget. I think it might be for working in schools, but I also work at Mary Baldwin in the in the ABA department. So send me along your information. I'll make sure I I passed it. They're a great group of folks over there as well. So in both both universities, just very cool people. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, um, can you know just for our listeners, can you? Uh, what I would like to do is put any information that they might want to uh, have in our show notes. So maybe you can send that to me. Like maybe send me your website, and if there's a video that shows how this works or whatever, you know, that would be wonderful. Uh, and if somebody wanted to reach out to you in the meantime, um, how how would they contact you? Uh, for both Liz and I, it's just our first name at vbmapapp.com. So I'm Steve at vbmapapp.com um, and Steve at eflapp.com. Okay. And Liz? Same. So Liz, and then depending on what you're interested in, vbmapapp or eflapp, which my mom likes to call eflap. Um <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't like at first, but I'm like, yeah, whatever. I don't know, did we explain this earlier? I mean, these are the skills we want people to engage in, right? One's an assessment and one's a, uh, a curriculum. Is that correct? Am I saying that right? They're actually both assessments and curricula, but um, BBMAP is more of an assessment and a curriculum guide. EFL is more of a brief quick assessment with baselining of skills and is more of a curriculum. And can you say, say the name EFL essentials for, is it daily living or living, essential for living? 
essential for living and definitely check out Pat McGreevy's website, but don't put in essentials for living because you go to a really nice furniture store. Um, <laughs> I would recommend the furniture. And I feel like I should because I keep putting in essentials for living. So essential for living. Well, just send me that link and I'll drop in the show yeah. notes so nobody will have a problem with it. Well, anything yeah. else you want to leave people with before we dip? It's been a fun, enlightening conversation for me. It sounds like you're doing some great things in the world. Um, I'd love seeing stuff like that, man. Let's make people's job easier, especially when it comes to helping other people. Let's just remove as much responsive as we can. I have something that I'm excited to share, uh, similar along the lines of that alternative method of speaking thing that I feel passionate about. We have other utilities that are going to be out there for free. Um, and another major part of my life, our life now, is getting translations of, of these utilities, these tools, um, where it, it is not at all uh, profitable to do so. But our feeling is that, you know, learners that speak Spanish, their voices count too. And we put time and money and effort into that because we feel that it, it's very much uh, unethical to not make attempts to get things out there in French and Spanish. So indeed, Dr. Sunberg uh, gets the translations done. Uh, we implement them into our apps and we're reaching a wider and wider off it, uh, um, uh, audience. It is not profitable, but it is the right thing to do. And uh, we now have learners that speak Portuguese, Turkish, Spanish, French, English, Japanese, and, and we're making big inroads with those. And I hope that um, not to preach to your audience, but I would, I would ask your, your audience to stop momentarily and think if a learner um, only speaks Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese, do, do their voices count? Of course they do. But once you ask the question and answer it, maybe that will spur more people to put more effort into translating materials and instructional procedures because there's a lot of folks out there with some very, very serious needs and they, they don't speak English. Right. And, yeah, EFL, uh, just to say that um, Pat and Troy have um, just released the paper version of EFL in Spanish, mm -hmm. and they spent a long time doing that for the same reason. Um, currently, it isn't electronic yet, but um, it will be, because so, like yeah. Steve said, it's super important to us. Yeah. Well, I love the idea that, again, trying to share and make a difference in the world. I think about that in my books. I have five books. I'm like, man, I would just, I want to put this stuff out there. We don't make any money on books anyhow. I don't care. You know, I really like people being, I love disseminating the science of human behavior to improve quality of life for people. So, well, thank you guys. Listen, Steve, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure to meet you. And, uh, you know, I hope that we have uh, a chance to, you know, shoot the, let, let me talk again next year to see how things are progressing for you guys. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you, awesome. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Traditionally, many crisis management systems have taken a what's wrong with you approach that begins as a person escalates when addressing behavioral issues. PCM, as a trauma-informed approach rooted in implied behavior analysis, shifts this perspective from what's wrong with you to what happened to you by having a complete picture of a person's situation in life, past and present. This approach is fundamental to applied behavior analysis and therefore PCM as it seeks to determine the root causes of behavior based on both the current environment and the individual's history as a means of individualizing education, treatment, 
and support. For more about PCM, check out crisisintervention.com.